In the days before the kings, when Samuel, the last judge of Israel, was just a boy, a tragedy occurred. Two priests by the name of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli the priest, foolishly took the Ark of the Covenant from its resting place, the tabernacle at Shiloh, into war against the Philistines, assuming that if they had the Ark as sort of a talisman, it would protect them. It would cause or bring about a victory in the war. You may know the story. It did not. Israel was routed. The Ark was captured. Hophni and Phinehas were killed. And when their father, old Eli, the priest, heard the news, he fell backward off his chair, broke his neck, and died. At that time, a child was born. We don't know anything about the child's life. All we know is the child's name, which would be, I believe, profoundly Prophetic. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 19, I'll just read it to you, says, Now his daughter-in-law, that is Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, for she died in this childbirth, The women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or paid attention. She called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Ichabod in the Hebrew simply means glory gone. The glory is gone. In Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, we have the second section of prophecy that Ezekiel receives, beginning with the visions in chapter 8 that we talked about on Sunday, and on through chapter 11, the prophecies that follow, and the full reality of Ichabod is brought to bear. The idea of the glory being gone, not just the ark, It's not just the loss of the temple, but the presence of God. And we we witness in these chapters the departure of the glory of the God of Israel. Now, going back, Sunday in chapter 8, the Spirit of the Lord, you might recall, caught Ezekiel up by a lock of his hair, bringing him in the Spirit to Jerusalem. And there he caught four visions, actually four abominations. The Lord said, Here are four things I want you to see. And with each one, he made this statement. In fact, back in chapter 8, verse 6, he said, But yet you will see still greater abominations. And down in verse 13, he says, For you will see still greater abominations, which they are committing. And then down in verse 15, he says, Yet you will still see greater abominations than these. Each one of these four visions, as we talked about, was worse than the vision before. Each abomination was more abominable, was more upsetting, was more disastrous, was more offensive to the Lord. Ezekiel uses that word, abominations, more than any other biblical writer. He uses it 44 times in his book, in his book of prophecy. The word abominations is to'ebah in the Hebrew. It means ritualistically offensive. This is a religious offense, ceremonially unclean. That's how the word is applied. And so the Asherah that we talked about, the the entrance of the inner court of the temple, the Asherah was an abomination. Worse were the secret chambers with carvings of beasts and detestable things and the men worshipping in those secret chambers there at the temple. Uh, Worse than that, the women weeping for Tammuz. And if you don't know who Tammuz is, then listen to Sunday. We talked about that. But worse still was the Levites standing between the porch and the altar, the place that Joel the prophet in chapter 2 verse 17 said they ought to be weeping for the people of Israel and interceding on their behalf, but instead they were prostrate on the ground, worshiping not the Lord to the Holy of Holies behind them, but with their backs to that, worshiping the sun. That big flaming ball of gas in the sky. Abomination after abomination after abomination. And the prophet Daniel will warn of an even greater abomination than these. The abomination of desolation, he calls it. Jesus will refer to it as well. We're not going to talk about that tonight. It'll have to wait till we get into the next book. But abominations. And back in Ezekiel chapter 8, the reason why God 
gives these, reveals these four abominations to Ezekiel is that the prophet now will become the witness for the prosecution. He now comes out of, as you'll see tonight, will come out of the visions and be back there with the men seated in his living room in Babylon at his home and will begin to tell them what he has just seen. We'll begin to unveil this and it is a witness for the prosecutorial case of the Lord. These revelations now give way not only to God's judgment, but to the I-Kabod, that is, glory gone. The departure of His glory. The Lord wants to make it absolutely clear why He would leave His precious Jerusalem and His people. So tonight we see the departure of glory. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 18, the last verse of the chapter, we'll pick it up right there. The Lord says, Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. And then Ezekiel says, He cried out. Now this is stunning to me. God cried out. We don't normally think of the Creator of the universe, our glorious God, crying out. But in contrast to the people... Ezekiel now says, God cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came up from the direction of the upper gate which faces north. Why the north becomes that? Because that's the direction of invasion. Again, most invasions into the land came from the north. And Babylon indeed invaded from the north. Six men came each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people and I alone was left, I fell on my face. I cried out saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. And the land is filled with blood and the city is full of perversion. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. But I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case, reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. Chapter 9, we're going to spend some more time on on Sunday. I want to get into some nitty-gritty things here that are fascinating to me. But I want you to notice just two things tonight out of this first chapter as we continue on. First off, the end of the abominations. The end of the abominations. Look again at verse 10, where the Lord says, But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Their conduct on their heads. You see, sin begins in the heart, but it lands on the head. It may start on the inside, it lays us out on the outside. Their conduct was on their heads. And that's so important to understand. I know many of you get this, but i got to say again, there is not just some unfair cosmic fatalism going on with God. We reap the results of our conduct. We get what we deserve. And those who would rebel and reject Jesus stand against God. When tragedy strikes, when things hit in their lives, it is a receiving of what? Their sin has found them out. And I know that sounds harsh in the world. I know there are people who say, well, that's not, that's not fair, that's, that's judgmental. But the child who disobeys the parent and is disciplined or punished for it 
No one says that that's wrong, although some would say you have to limit yourselves and you're not allowed to spank a child. I'll let them deal with the Lord on that one. Our own sin choices, our own conduct before a perfect God merits judgment. And the ultimate testimony against us or against the sin of this world, let me put it that way, is the blood of Jesus. The blood of the one perfect man poured out at Calvary. Jesus' blood testifies on all people. Matthew 27, 23, Pilate said, what evil has he done? They kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Then when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, do you remember the line? His blood shall be on us and on our children. And it's the one line in the Hebrew that was removed from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Every other line biblically was in there, but that line was removed because it was offensive to Jewish people. His blood be on us and on our children. But that's the deal. His blood is on us and on our children. His blood testifies, either testifies against us or testifies for us. If we are in rebellion against Him, if we reject Jesus, His own perfect blood testifies against us. If we receive Jesus... If we love Jesus, His blood testifies for us. He is either a witness for the prosecution or He's a witness for the defense. And it all depends on the decision that we make. John writes in 1 John 5, verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And listening to tonight, to Alexis, uh, pronounce that belief before going into the water. That is the deal. That doesn't just bring joy to our hearts, that brings joy to the whole host of heaven. To hear people proclaim the name of Jesus. And John says, Jesus is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood, in His birth and in His death. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. These three testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. The blood of the only innocent man ever to live, his blood is upon the head of all people. If it is on us by faith in him, we're saved. His blood, if it is on us out of our own rebellious conduct, we are condemned. But the good news is, Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So the end of abominations comes when sin is paid for. That's when the abomination ceases to be an abomination before the Lord, when the sin is paid for one way or another. But not only does God proclaim the end here of Jerusalem and the end of these abominations, but we also note here, secondly, the beginning of the departure. And here in chapter 9, The departure begins. Verse 3, go back and look. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. The cherub refers to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. The two cherubim that are facing each other on the mercy seat. God said, that's where I'll meet you. That's the place of His presence. That's where the Shekinah, the Shekinah, we say, glory of God, rests and resided in the Holy of Holies of the temple. But now, Ezekiel says, I saw this, the glory of God lifted up from that place and now has made His way. Step one, you might say. Step one of the departing glory of the Lord from above the cherubim, the mercy seat, now to the threshold of the temple because God is leaving. He's on His way out. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then I looked and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Did you catch that? The man clothed in linen... In chapter 9, the man clothed in linen was the one tasked with going throughout 
the city and marking those people in the city who were grieved at the abominations. Therefore, those people who loved the Lord and who were brokenhearted over what they saw going on, there were always a remnant of Jews who were faithful to the Lord. They were not into all of the idolatry and all of the sin. Mothers and fathers taking their children up to temple and guarding their eyes against viewing the Asherah at the north gate. People who really did love the Lord and worship the Lord, and God says, I want them protected. So He tells the man in linen, take your writing case and mark off these people for me. I want them protected. But now the same man in linen is charged with going throughout the city and spreading the coal of fire, the burning of Jerusalem. In one case, grace. In the other case, judgment. Who is this man clothed in linen? I believe we're seeing another example of the pre-incarnate Christ. That we're seeing Jesus at work. He is the one with the authority to grant both grace and judgment. To mark as His own and to judge with fire. John 1.16 says, Of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God of all grace. However, John 5.22 says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And John 5.27, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. And I point that out just so that we don't miss that Jesus holds the authority to pardon and to punish, to save and to strike. He has the authority and the power to do both. Matthew 28.18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and Jesus is alone the only source or hope for our salvation. And He's doing both. We'll talk about that more on Sunday. But the man in linen, I think we see Jesus at work there. And it's a fascinating study. Verse 3, continuing on, chapter 10. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Now Ezekiel here is expanding on what he said. In verse 3 of chapter 9, he's just giving the fuller picture of it. It's still step 1, leaving the place above the mercy seat and coming out to the threshold, but he tells us more. He tells us that the beginning of the departure of God's glory is strikingly similar to the arrival of God's glory. And perhaps you remember that story four centuries earlier, roughly. 1 Kings 8 verse 10 says it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the whole house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the whole house of the Lord. That was on dedication day. When Solomon's temple was completed and and God came and showed by His glory inhabiting that place and inhabiting the Holy of Holies. Well, the same thing's happening. It's just happening in reverse. We see the amazing, the Shekinah glory of God now departing, but He fills the temple as He departs. At that time, 400 years prior, all Israel witnessed this. They witnessed the arrival of His glory. Watch this. Now, apparently, only Ezekiel witnesses the departure of His glory. I find that interesting, because that seems to be the way that it is. We are, we are so delightfully aware of His coming, and we are densely unaware of His departure. When He comes in, yes, Lord, yes, Lord! You know, we want that. We love the experience of knowing He's come. When we first give our lives to Jesus, or those mountaintop experiences where we know He just floods the heart and the soul, He fills us up with His glory. But how often is there a departure? And we don't even know. Because like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we are busy doing other things. Are you talking about the loss of our salvation, Rick? No, I'm talking about the loss of His presence which is an equally dismal thing, to lose the presence of the Lord. But we lose that presence when we are completely unaware. I guess because when people do reject Jesus, we've become so dulled to His presence that there's no awareness of His departure. The Bible talks about that. 1 Timothy 4.1 The Spirit explicitly says, in latter days, some will fall away from the faith. 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, they won't know right from wrong, and they will not discern the the departure of the Spirit. I have seen in church settings where an entire church fellowship did not witness or was unaware of the departure of the Holy Spirit. Because the church is so focused, or the leadership is so focused, or the pastor is so focused on himself or on ourselves, that we miss the fact that God's saying, that's just not what I'm doing right now. The removal of the lampstand, as we see in the early chapters of Revelation. And I just, I want to be vividly aware of the Holy Spirit all the time. I never want there to be a moment where I'm unaware. I don't want there to be a moment where I just realize, man, I feel empty. Wow, when did He depart? I don't ever want to be in the shoes of Saul who lost the Spirit. I want to be like David. You know, a man after God's own heart. And it's remarkable to me to note that God does not slink off quietly. He doesn't slip out the back door of the temple. He fills the temple and makes His way out to the threshold. And He doesn't do it quietly, by the way. Look at verse 5. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. Ezekiel doesn't say, I heard this sound in the vision. He says, the sound was heard. Which means there were people in the outer court who heard the noise and still didn't have a clue what was going on. Still completely missed. It's amazing to me to think about God crying out, as as He does in chapter 9 and verse 1. The voice of the Lord crying out, booming, speaking. In Revelation chapter 10, the Apostle John describes that voice. He calls it the seven thunders. I heard the voice of the seven thunders. When we studied Revelation, we pointed this out. I want to read it to you. Psalm 29. In fact, you can flip over there if you'd like to. Psalm 29. Just go left from Ezekiel a little ways, you'll get there. Roughly in the middle of your Bibles. But when John mentions the seven thunders in Revelation chapter 10, it's it's not something that should be confusing or bizarre or strange, especially not to someone uh, with a skullcap on. You know, someone who's thinking Hebrew with a Jewish mindset. The seven thunders speaks of the voice of God. We see it in... Psalm 29, verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And the seventh time, the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. And and in His temple, everything says glory. The voice of the Lord. The seven thunders. God not being quiet. He does not go quietly into that fair night. He makes a lot of noise. There's a racket. There's a filling of the temple by His glory. Why does nobody hear it? Why does nobody see it? Because their eyes are elsewhere. And because their faith is not in that place. And because, well, honestly, no one's looking for the Lord. Clueless to the departure of glory. Look at verse 6. It came about that when He commanded, the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from between the whirling wheels... And from between the cherubim, he entered and stood beside a wheel. And then the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire, which was between the cherubim, and he took some and put it into the hands of the one clothed in linen who took it and who went out. And so the man clothed in linen, now with handfuls of of burning coals, goes out to execute this fiery judgment on Jerusalem. Isaiah 33, verse 14 says, sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? And another hint as to who this man in linen is. John the Baptist said of Jesus in Matthew 3.11, 
He who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And by the way, my opinion, just Rick's opinion on this, we see a lot of logos in the church of the Holy Spirit as fire. You know, a little flame of fire, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. People really get jazzed and turned on by that idea. I don't think that's what he's saying. In my opinion, what he's saying is Jesus will baptize either with the Holy Spirit or with the judgment of fire. Again, he has the authority unto both. Hebrews 12.29 tells us, For our God is a consuming fire. And you need to note this, the prophetic vision of burning coals throughout the city was fulfilled literally. 2 Kings 25 verse 9 says he burned the house of the Lord, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So the man in linen goes out. He begins the burning. The Lord is departing. All this taking place, but Ezekiel's eyes, at least for the moment, remain transfixed on this awesome vision. Verse 8. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. Well, then I looked, and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone. That's was described in the first chapter as beryl, or some translations say chrysolite, same stone, kind of a, a yellow jasper stone. Verse 10, as for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness, as if one wheel were within another wheel. And when they moved, they went in any of four directions without turning as they went, but they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. Their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. Now, he didn't say that in chapter 1. He's just now beginning to detect more information about the cherubim that's blowing his mind. And so like John talks about in Revelation 4, now Ezekiel talks about as well, full of eyes all around, which indicates or speaks of that whole idea of the, of the omniscience of God. God who knows, God who sees everything. The wheels belonging to all four of them. Verse 13, the wheels were called in my hearing, the whirling wheels. And each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. And then the cherubim rose up. They are the living creatures, by the way, that I saw by the river Kabar. So that's how we know they're cherubim. He didn't name them. Chapter 1 called them living beings. Now he says the cherubim were the living beings. One and the same uh, creature here. Verse 16, now when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also when the cherubim lifted up their wings and to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would also stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord, note this, departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Again, this is the same as the vision back in chapter 1. There are a few exceptions, things that Ezekiel sees a little more, so he shares a little bit more of what he sees. But there are a couple of problems here. First of all, how many faces do the cherubim have? Four faces, right. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10 tells us, the faces of a man, a lion, an eagle, and an ox. But now he substitutes something, and maybe you caught it. Instead of saying the face of an ox, here he says the face of a cherub. Okay, so man, uh, lion, eagle, and a baby face? (laughs) No, no. Cherubim are not cutesy little cupids. Let's be clear about this. We need to completely change our understanding. A cherub is not a baby in a diaper with a bow and arrow. That is not a cherub. This is a cherub, which would freak anybody out to see would absolutely frighten us. But why the change? Why in chapter 1 he sees the face of an ox, but now he sees the face of a cherub? Some believe this is a scribal error. And in translating over the years, some scribe miswrote uh, in the Scriptures. What's interesting, if you look at the word in the Hebrew, the two words, ox and, and cherub, do not look anything alike. 
So it would have to be almost an intentional uh, omission or an intentional intentional change by a scribe, and some ascribe to that. Some say, yeah, scribal error, that's why it's different here. I like what, what Feinberg said about this. He said, reverent Bible students will do well to treat difficulties in the text as problems rather than errors and continue to search for meaningful solutions. Just because you don't get it, just because we don't understand something in Scripture that that seems amiss, doesn't mean it's an error in Scripture. It means we don't have enough info to understand what's going on. And I absolutely believe this. I, I, you know, my toes curl every time I read a commentator say scribal error, and I just go, "Oh, come on." A, it's a cop out. B, it's faithless. C, you're not taking the time to ask the Lord what it really means. D. I'm at D, yeah? Yeah, D. It's God's Word. I've asked you in here before, is, is the Lord incapable of keeping His Word? Of, of transferring His Word down through the ages? No. We misunderstand things. We miss things from time to time. And so I just say that by way of encouragement. If you don't understand in Scripture, take the time to understand it. If you miss something, if there's something that's problematic, slow down, pray about it, and search for the solution. Don't just assume that there's a flaw. Because I have found over and over and over in my study, things that I thought perhaps could be flaws are always ultimately explained. So what about this one, ox or cherub? Others say that the the ox and the cherub are interchangeable by similarity, that that the ox is the best single representation of these living, living beings. Sometimes they're referred as cherub, sometimes they're referred as ox in the face. I think that's kind of lame too. Um, And if you want to know what I think after careful study, I will let you know when I see them. Okay? I don't think it's that big a deal. I'll let you know when I see them, Spencer. Yeah. I'm not going to try and resolve this because I'm not sure how you resolve it. In one place, he looks and he calls it an ox. In another place, he just says the cherub. Other people have said, well, perhaps it's because this cherub was a unique cherub above the others and he doesn't refer to the ox. He just says the cherub and then goes on, oh yeah, and the lion and the eagle, etc. It doesn't matter because it's still a cherub. These are the four cherubim. We know the four cherubim have four faces. We know what the four faces are. He's described that. He's declared it. And simply saying, I saw one with the face of a cherub is not problematic. It is the face of a cherub, isn't it? It's still a cherub's face. Whether you call it an ox face or an eagle, or it still belongs to the cherub. It's his face. So we leave that. I think we spent probably too much time on it already. There's another difference here, and that is in that the original vision was heavenly... The heavenly throne room, as he saw, opened up. Although the cherubim were moving between earth and heaven, but the heavenly throne room, and this one is obviously very much in the temple in Jerusalem. Interesting. God's glory in the earthly temple was somehow divinely connected to his heavenly throne room. Something beyond, again, explanation or or understanding is some way our Lord, who is beyond time, space, and dimension, is both in the heavenly throne room, but His glory is also in the throne room miniature of the Holy of Holies. And that there's a connection there. And so now Ezekiel's looking at the temple and he's seeing this amazing scene, exact same scene that he saw as a heavenly scene before, is now an earthly scene. God is, remember, spirit. Jesus says, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. God is not limited like we are limited. I love this quote. Sir Isaac Newton once said, He could take up a telescope and look at the nearest star, but he could put down the telescope, get on his knees, and penetrate the outer heavens to the very throne of God. Because God's not limited. As believers in Jesus, knowing that He inhabits the temple of our bodies and the throne room of our hearts is a remarkable thought. But that's what He does. And that's what He is capable of doing. God is Spirit and we worship Him in spirit and truth. Last thing to note is simply that the vision back in chapter 1, while it was a dynamic vision, it was somewhat stationary. 
They weren't really going anywhere. They were remaining in the same place. Even as the cherubim moved around by their spirit in the wheels, the chariots, they moved. But they were right there in that area. Now, all of a sudden, the entire entourage is on the move. Verse 16. Now, when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings... To rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. And if you look again at verse 13, the NASB translates it, The wheels were called in my hearing, the whirling wheels. This is more than just a name that's being given to the wheels. It is a signal. Okay, some translations put it uh, that the wheels were, were called to be whirling, or were called whirl, as though, it's, as though not just that they're being named, but they're being signaled, time to spin, time to move. Like saying, you naval personnel, wheels up at 0600. That's what's going on here. The Lord is declaring, wheels up, whirl, time to spin, time, time to spin and time to roll on now. Verse 18, So the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Now we're moving again. He's gone from the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat to the threshold. Now he departs the threshold. When the cherubim departed, verse 19, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of God hovered over them. These are the living beings I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Kabar. So I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, each one had four wings, and beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Kabar, and each one went straight ahead. So step one, the Lord departs the mercy seat to the threshold. Step two now, the Lord departs the threshold and He heads over to the door of the east gate. So from the threshold of the temple out to the door of the east gate and He warned He would do this. The people of Israel should not have been surprised at the loss of the glory of God. Back in Deuteronomy 31.17 the Lord spoke through Moses saying, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be consumed. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? And some might say, Wow, that's just... He's, he's, he's telling them ahead of time, He's going to withdraw, He's going to depart, He's going to leave. Yeah, 800 years earlier. If that's not patience... I'll tell you what, I don't have 800 years of patience with my kids. They're lucky if they get eight minutes, you know. 800 years, God said, this is what's going to happen if you rebel. And for 800 years, there had been rebellion. And so finally, it takes place. The prophet Hosea, chapter 9, verse 12, says, Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Chapter 11, verse 1. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up, and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And behold, there were twenty-five men at the entrance of the gate. And among them I saw Jeotzaniah, the son of Atzur. Now this is a different Jeotzaniah than the one we saw in chapter 8, because that one was the son of Shaphan. So this is the son of Atzur. Same name, different guy. And Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. And he said to me, Son of man... These are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the pot, and we are the flesh. Therefore, prophesy against them, son of man. Prophesy, he says. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city are the flesh. And this city is the pot, but I will bring you out of it. You have feared the sword, 
So I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares, and I will bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel so you shall know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Now it came about, as I prophesied, that Pelatea, son of Benaiah, died. Now stop right there a second. Ezekiel is now carried on in the continuing vision to that eastern gate. Looking over the Cadron Valley toward the Mount of Olives, the new Bible students remember the gate of the city was the courthouse. That's where judgment took place. That's where advice and counsel was given. The elders would sit in the city gate. And that's who these 25 men are. And not the same 25 men we saw in chapter 8. Those 25 were representatives of the priesthood. These 25 are elders of the city. They're leaders. They give counsel. They give judgment. And leading these guys were this Jeotzaniah and this Pelatiah. And these two guys and the men among them counseled rebellion. They said, as we read in verse 3, the time is not near to build houses. And what's that about? They've gotten word about the letter that Jeremiah, prior to Ezekiel, the letter Jeremiah had sent to the exiles in Babylon. Remember the letter? Jeremiah 29. Where we get Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Well, Jeremiah 29, verse 5, the Lord says to the exiles in this letter from Jeremiah, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. God's saying to the exiles, settle, because you're going to be there for the duration. And as we talked about when we studied Jeremiah, it was the hand of protection of the Lord on the people that He sent into exile. I'm going to send you away. You're going to see idolatry. I'm going to discipline you, but I'll protect you there. I'm going to keep you there. So build your homes. Settle down. Plant vineyards. It's going to be a few years. Seventy, to be precise. These guys are rebelling against that, saying, no, 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 no. Don't build houses. You're not going to be there long. We're going to have a miraculous overthrow of Babylon, and then you guys will be back. Don't do that. That's a waste of time. As a matter of fact, really the best place to be in the world is in Jerusalem. And so they developed this defiant motto, also in verse 3. This is the pot, and we are the flesh. That was their motto. That was their bumper sticker. This is the pot and we are the flesh. I read that and I went, really? I mean, you're that dumb? That is the dumbest motto I've ever heard. This is the pot and we are the flesh. Okay, I understand what they meant was Jerusalem was like a protective pot and they were the flesh safe inside from the fire on the outside. But what happens to flesh in a pot where there's fire outside? You cook it! It is meat for dinner! It's just, it's amazing how stupid they are. And I mean no offense by it. They were in rebellion to the Lord, so I'll take a little license. We'll just say this was inane. Jerusalem's our pot. We're the flesh. Everything's good as long as we're in the pot. No, you're going to get cooked in the pot. And what's remarkable here is their own motto judged their absurdity. Their own thinking showed how foolish they were. How, how like humankind is that? We think we are so wise. And yet our wisdom is often utter foolishness when it doesn't come from the Lord. That's why we had you pray over us earlier. We don't want wisdom from man or wisdom from below. We want the wisdom that is from above. And so the Lord says, okay, you want to keep that bumper sticker? Fine. This city is the pot and you are the meat and you're going to fry. And I am going to bring you out cooked for the meal. And those within Jerusalem are going to be meat like they're slain. I'm going to bring you out of the frying pan and into the fire, in essence, the Lord says. Verse 11, he, he said, This city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel. Another literal fulfillment of prophecy, the border of Israel, not Judah. Note that. He didn't say the border of Judah. I'm going to judge you all the way up to the border of Israel. Well, what was at the border of Israel? A city by the name of Riblah. 
Ribla, which was on the Orontes River, northwest of Damascus, the far border of Israel, which had been extinct since 722, but Ribla up there on what would have been the far border of Israel, today it's the border between Lebanon and Israel, was the place that the people were taken before they were taken to Babylonian captivity or they were taken up and slain. That's where Zedekiah was taken before Nebuchadnezzar where he was slaughtered. God says, I'm going to take you right up to the border of Israel. Note that in prophecy, God will be that specific. He doesn't generalize. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring you to the border of the land. Well, that could be any border. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring you to the border of Judah because Riblah is not in Judah. He says, to the border of Israel. 2 Kings 25, verse 20, Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamat. And so Judah was led away into exile from its own land. And Jeremiah 52 verifies that same thing. So the immediate proof of this prophecy now, that I'm going to take you to the end of Israel, to that point, to Riblah, the immediate proof is Pelatea drops dead. The prophecy is spoken, here's what's going to happen, and I don't know if it was a heart attack, I don't know if it was some kind of a seizure, but immediately Pelatea just dies right there. Verse 13, it came about, as I prophesied, Pelatea, son of Benaiah, died. Now watch Ezekiel's response. I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? You know what he's doing right there? What the priests should have been doing. He is crying out for his people. He's weeping. In the vision. He intercedes in a weeping prayer to the Lord. Is this it? Will you make an end to to everything? And I love this. He touches the heart of God who then responds in verse 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brothers your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them, for a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come here, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit Within them, I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Verse 21, But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. My friends, This is very clearly a prophecy of the diaspora. This is not just an immediate prophecy. This is a long-ranging prophecy that is yet even to be completely fulfilled. The prophecy of the Lord saying, I'm going to scatter throughout the world. The Jewish people are going to be everywhere. They will not have a homeland. The dispersion of the Jews beyond 722 B.C., beyond 586 B.C., and long after 70 A.D., God says they will be dispersed. But this is an ironclad promise of their return and ultimately of their redemption. And it is prophecies like this that shifted my thinking from years ago from replacement theology to redemption theology, if I can call it that, that the people of Israel have a future. Well, why would they? Because God said so. Because this is part of His plan. Because He pronounced it, note this, without condition. He's not saying, Ezekiel, if they'll get their act together, I'm going to make it happen. No. He says, I'm going to do this. I am going to gather them. I'm going to bring them back. We see this amazing regathering happening even now. 
The heart is still rather stony. The land is still very secular. Oh, there are a few believers. There are several Messianic Jews coming to faith in Jesus, recognizing Him as Messiah. But there's still a stony heart overall. What does God say? I'm going to give them one heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within them. I'll take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. What does He mean by a heart of flesh? He's talking about new birth. A brand new heart. He is speaking there of exactly what Jesus says happens when someone gives their life to Jesus. John chapter 3, in that great conversation he had with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Now understand this, because I I read this with, with, with a lack of understanding before. In fact, we were in Jeremiah, and I read this passage, and I went, why is he giving him a heart of flesh? I mean, don't we want to get away from the flesh? Don't we want to just be in the Spirit? Isn't the flesh what we want to depart from? Why is He giving them a heart of flesh? And the answer is very clear. It's because this is Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. In the flesh! Right? You understand that when Jesus returns in His second coming and all the saints with Him, the holy ones with Him, He will establish His millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 details that thousand year reign. And in that thousand year reign, those who are in the flesh, still in their human, non-glorified bodies, people of Israel, enter that kingdom in the flesh. But they will have a new heart of flesh. A soft heart. A beating heart. A heart that longs for the Lord. A heart that loves Jesus, as many of you have here tonight. I assume all of you. A heart of flesh, indicating spiritual birth and yet still being in the flesh. And that's the promise for Israel. On the other side of the equation, the heart of stone simply cannot see what God is doing. The heart of stone is closed off. The heart of stone is, by definition, hard. The prophet Zechariah would later comment on this. Looking back, Zechariah would say in chapter 7, verse 12, they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. The heart got hard. These are Jewish people who sat under Torah teaching and eventually just got tired of it. I know that feeling. I grew up in the church. I sat under a lot of teaching. And there were many years in my life where I didn't hear it because I just got tired of it. Oh, not the Word of God so much. I I think it was just a lack of understanding. It was a lack, a lot of times, on different Bible teachers part to really even understand what they were teaching and so it was lightweight and superficial and and my heart got hard. I got tired of listening. Church to me, man, when the pastor opened the Bible it was just time to... I mean, I would have given anything for chairs like these. And the Lord had to get a hold of me and I'm telling you, it took years before I rediscovered a love for the Word of God which is, I believe, a spirit-born love, and suddenly that heart of flesh begins to crack and break and beat again as the Spirit pours out. Well, these, these leaders in Jerusalem, these um, potheads, <laughs> had hearts of, of stone, these political hacks. They actually, by the way, thought they were better than the exiles. That mentality is kind of clear here, uh, where they say, um, further back, where is that point? Uh, oh yeah, verse 15 of chapter 11, go far from the Lord, this land has been given us as a possession. You exiles, poor pathetic things, but we're still in the land, man. And we're still in the pot. You know, we're still in Jerusalem. So we're cool and we're really, we're really the ones who, who have it all together. And you exiles, they look down upon the exiles. 
God says, you guys are messed up. Why did they think the exile so pathetic? Because they still believed that their safety, their security was Jerusalem and the sanctuary. They thought departure from the land was departure from the Lord, not realizing at that very moment the Lord was departing from them. But I love verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. Thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. He says it in the past tense, but it's something that was about to happen. And so when God speaks like that, it is absolute assurance. He is speaking from the position of This is already a done deal. This has already happened as far as I'm concerned. They're already scattered and I am already a sanctuary for them. My sanctuary is gone. The temple is destroyed. But the temple wasn't really the true sanctuary anyway, was it? The barn is not our sanctuary. The church building is not the sanctuary. What a comforting word to the exiles in Ezekiel's care who he's about to share this with Hey, you guys are in a foreign land. You're scattered. But I'm your sanctuary. I'm your temple. I'm still here for you. I'll be your refuge. In the Middle Ages, Jewish communities, especially in Eastern Europe, established small places of communal Jewish prayer. Not synagogues. They had their synagogues. Oftentimes, the synagogues were burned down or ended up sites of of pogroms or, or persecutions. But as opposed to the more formal, often prohibited synagogue, these little places of prayer were called, in the Yiddish, shtibels, or shtibels. And you go to the shtibel. In the Hebrew, ma'at mikdash. The ma'at mikdash, the shtibel, little sanctuary. Little sanctuary. Man, if we were going to call small groups anything, that's what we should call them. Hey, you want to come to a little sanctuary tonight? The little sanctuary of the Lord. The Lord says in the scattered place. And it's because of this verse, by the way. Because the Lord said in the scattered places, I will be a sanctuary to them. And so as they were scattered, Jews began to develop these little small group mentality. Let's gather together in the shtibel. They still use that word in Jerusalem today for small communal houses of prayer. Shtibel. They use it in the United States. Jews around the world still will refer to a shtibel. And they go meet in the shtibel and have prayer together sanctuary Monday night my head was on my pillow and I was trying to go to sleep you know, Jimmy I know you have this because we've talked about it before have you ever had that thing happen where you're you're trying to relax and you got a song in your head and it's going around and around and around and around and you cannot make it stop isn't there a word for that you remember Crazy, thank you, Spencer. <laughs> it's just you're going around. It's, it's kind of like that song, that that children's song is a song that never ends, but it goes on and on, my friend. And you just and there's no ending to it because you get to the end and you got to start right back. Oh, well, I was. I, I confess to you, it was a Beatles song. It was, and your bird can sing. That song has this lead guitar line. It's, it's a really cool line. And I had heard it earlier in the day and it got stuck in my head and I kid you not. So I'm lying there in bed, hands on my pillow. Cheryl's sound asleep. She's sawing logs over there. She's completely gone. I'm going... And Jerry Bird can't sing. I'm going, I want to go to sleep. And so I, I paused in that moment. I paused and I go, Lord, Lord, Lord. I got Beatles in my head. I got Beatles in my bed. Get the Beatles out. And I did. I just read this. Lord, could you give me another song? And immediately, Shelter came to mind. Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I probably sang that song through in my head twice and I was out. Because I came into the shelter. And right before I fell asleep, I made a little middle note. Sing this on Wednesday night, which is why we did. The shelter, the sanctuary. I had no idea until yesterday when I was studying that we were going to be talking about the sanctuary. 
the sanctuary of the Lord, the place of peace, the place to which He invites us, He draws us. And I say to you, if your life is crazy, if it's scattered, if it's noisy, if things are spinning in your brain, if you feel distant from God, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, You're my refuge. You're my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It is not a temple you need. And it's not a synagogue or a cathedral or a barn or even a shtible. <laughs> you need Him. You just need Him. And I can promise you this much. When we say, Lord Jesus, I need to be in Your presence, He shows up. Because He is our sanctuary. Get to the end of Revelation. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. You Bible students, what is the temple in New Jerusalem? The Lord. There is no temple. For the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. He's my sanctuary. Verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Note this, verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. And so the vision that I had seen left me. In verse 25, Then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Back at the beginning of chapter 8, the elders are sitting in his living room. Now Ezekiel's back. And all that's happened, all that's transpired in these chapters, Ezekiel will now share with the elders. But note, this is step 3. Of the departing glory of the Lord. From the mercy seat to the temple threshold. From the threshold to the east gate. And now from the east gate up to the mountain that is east of Jerusalem. What mountain is that? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, the highest mountain there, which actually is higher than Jerusalem, and you can look down over the whole sprawling city before you. It's a beautiful sight. And now the glory of the Lord is above the Mount of Olives. Rabbis have enumerated no less than ten stages of the departure of the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord. And what's interesting, and they note this, and we even read this in the chapter, it's not instantaneous. God doesn't start from the mercy seat and go, I'm out of here, and He's gone. He moves from mercy seat to threshold, to door, to gate, to the Mount of Olives. And again, the rabbis say it was a long, slow, loving reluctance to leave. I think that's right on. It looks as though the Lord is saying, I don't want to leave, but I have to leave. And in each place, He pauses. One more chance, one more opportunity. I don't want to... He does that with us, by the way. I don't want to leave. You sure? You don't want me here? I'd really like to be here. And then he's at the threshold. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And then he's at the gate. And then he's at the Mount of Olives. A curious um, midrash, a rabbinical commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, says the following. Rabbi Yonatan said, Three years and a half, the Shekinah stayed upon the Mount of Olives in the hope that Israel would do penance, but they did not. That is roughly the length of Jesus' earthly ministry. Three years and a half. I don't know where the Rabbi Jonathan got that idea. I don't know the validity of it, but it is interesting that that's pointed out that the Shekinah took three and a half years before actually departing from the Mount of Olives. Don't know if that actually happened, but I'll tell you what's interesting is this whole thing is a picture of the departure of Jesus. From start to finish... The prophet Haggai, speaking of the restored second temple, said in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. The second temple is going to be greater than the first. Well, those who, the book of Ezra tells us, who stood there at the completion of the foundation of the second temple, the old men wept because it was tiny and pathetic by comparison to Solomon's glorious temple that they remembered. The young men who hadn't seen it, they rejoiced. The old men wept because it did not have that glory. 
And as far as we can tell, biblically speaking, the Holy Spirit never, the Shekinah, never entered into the second temple. Never filled it up. Now Herod built it up. He retrofitted the whole thing to make it this big glorious edifice. And it was pretty astounding. Although Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another. So how is it that the second temple would be more glorious? Would The glory of the second temple would be greater than that of the former when the former had the Shekinah glory. Because the second temple had Jesus. Because the Messiah stepped foot into that temple, worshipped in that temple, taught in that temple, healed in the courts of that temple. Jesus was there. And Ezekiel's vision of the departure of the Shekinah glory speaks of the glorious departure of Jesus. He moved out of the temple and went then across the Kedron Valley and up the side of the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane where he prayed. And there was arrested and taken back into the city. After his death, burial, and resurrection, you know, he ascended from the Mount of Olives, the same mountain he ascended up into glory. Hosea 5.15 says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And the good news is though the glory departed, though Jesus Himself departed out to the Mount of Olives and up into heaven, Acts chapter 1, the angels proclaimed, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. He's coming back. He is returning. Zechariah 14 verse 4 says, In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And so the glorious return of Jesus Christ is as absolutely certain as the tragic departure of the glory of God. He's coming back. Are you ready? Are you waiting? Are you watching? Let's stand up together. Lord Jesus, we do not mourn the loss of Your glory. We long for the return. We praise You for the presence of Your Spirit of glory residing in our hearts. I pray, Lord Jesus, tonight that Your Spirit would would continue to fill the temples of our bodies. That Your glory would fill us. That we would be as mirrors reflecting the light of the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we will be used by You in this day and in this age. But Lord Jesus, we long for and look to Your coming. We long to be in the presence of Your glory. That scene that Ezekiel now describes a second time, we long to be there, worshiping You with the cherubim and with the elders and with the angels and with the saints who have gone before And we know that day is promised and that day will come. We know that day is coming that You have promised when we will return with You and You will establish that long prophesied kingdom and You will establish Your people Israel and You will replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Father, we just pray for Your will to be done. And we pray, Lord, with joy, thanksgiving that we are part of it. And we praise You for what You are about to do. In the holy name of Jesus, Amen.